Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I hate these earphones. Okay. Oh. They're very claustrophobic. You look good, man. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All righty. Um, you know, we can stop. You know, we can cut into I'm, this and do anything. I'm here, but to, to be a uh, clay in your hands. <laughs> I don't know. I, uh, <laughs> I don't really know what I'm doing. But. I'll help you. All right. You could direct I, it. I, 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 I don't know what to say, but I have a you charming accent. It, right? Yeah. <laughs> that accent belongs to Academy Award-winning director Guillermo del Toro. Del Toro introduction. Okay, all right. He's sitting across from one of his idols, you know what we saw another acclaimed director, writer, producer, actor, really critic, and historian, Absolutely extraordinary. a film icon, Peter Bogdanovich. That's very funny. Did they get it? They got it. I said, we had a musical on it. <laughs> That's very funny. My name is Louise Stratton. Can I direct you for a second? Yeah, of course you can. Just remember what you said about a conversation. This is oh, like yeah. a conversation, oh, you're and you're right. telling somebody what you're doing. Right, right, right. That's me. Can I go off script? Yeah. Okay. Oh, sure. Okay. Peter Guillermo and I are in a sound studio in Los Angeles. Let's try it again. And we're getting ready to record a podcast. Okay, now... Um, I got Rhapsody and Blue ready to go. Let's start. Ready? I hold it, hold it, cut. I've got to have that list where, where, where it's, there's a list. Peter wants another take Everything. to get it just right. In order in which we do it, where is that? He knows exactly what he wants. Yeah, that's okay, but... Just like one of his films. All right, let's try it. Hit me again. Ready? I'll gesture to you when to fade the music out. All right. Here we go. That's Rhapsody in Blue by George Gershwin. And I'm Peter Bogdanovich. And this is our podcast about movies, old and new. If you haven't seen a picture, it's not old. It's new. I hate when people say, have you seen that old movie? They never say, have you seen that old play by Shakespeare or that old <laughs> book by Fitzgerald? Because if you haven't seen it, it's fresh. This podcast is Peter's idea. Filmmakers talking to filmmakers about filmmakers. Peter recorded these lines in September of 2021. That wasn't bad. Four months later, he passed away at the age of 82. We got it. Now, one more time. This interview never aired. Neither did the others he did for this project. All right, we want to try one? Go for it. I'm just going to stop if I don't like it. All Peter ever wanted to do in life was make movies. And when he wasn't making them, all he ever wanted to do was talk about them especially with other directors. That's why he wanted to make this podcast. We're calling this new adventure of ours One Handshake Away, and here's why. In the 60s and 70s, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview on audio tape some of the many pioneer picture directors who were still living at that time. Men like John Ford, Howard Hawks, Alfred Hitchcock, and Orson Welles, for a total of 17 filmmakers on tape. Long before he made his first movie, Peter began interviewing the directors who influenced him. Howard Hawks, sound roll two. Well, Pete, start asking questions. All right. He recorded hours and hours of material, volumes of tapes, a cinephile's treasure chest. You see, Psycho, of course, relies entirely upon the visual mm -hmm. for its telling. So you don't, you don't really like that kind of uh, cinema? That's really how Peter got his start in the movie business. And in 1969, just one year after he directed his first film, Peter had a chance to interview his idol, 
the legendary Orson Welles. I only learned my name was George when I was about 10 years old. No, I was called Orson all my life. I wish I'd known that I had George. Imagine what a name, George Orson Welles. All of it. The whole name, that's the greatest name ever known. Yeah, great. I should have been George but Orson I Welles. I would have been emperor of the universe with a name <laughs> like that. Not long after his first interview with Orson Welles, Peter directed The Last Picture Show, and the rest is movie history. Peter became one of the most celebrated directors in Hollywood, with films like Paper Moon, Mask, and so many more. But even then, he still loved talking shop with other directors. He studied them. He wanted to know what made them tick, and he did that through conversation. So we thought it'd be interesting to ask some of our contemporary directors to choose from the list of 17 the one who had the greatest influence on them, personally and or professionally. Peter viewed this project as the perfect chance to take his career full circle. So he started recording interviews with other directors again, his favorite contemporary filmmakers, some of the biggest names in Hollywood. Only these were directors who grew up looking at Peter the way that Peter looked at Orson Welles. Now you might be wondering how I fit into all of this. My co-host is Louise Stratton. She's a quadruple threat, fine actress, perceptive writer, excellent and instinctive producer, and a budding expert on classic American films. Well, I don't know about that. (laughs) (laughs) What Peter didn't mention there is that I'm also his ex-wife. We were married for 13 years, and almost every evening we would sit on the couch together and he'd say, want to watch a movie? Even after our marriage ended, he was still one of my closest friends and collaborators. How was that? She's the director. That was better. It was better, yeah. I don't know if he thought this would be his final project, but I do know how much he wanted to put it out into the world. And so that's why you're hearing from me, because I want to make sure you get to hear from Peter and his iconic guests. Past and present. This is One Handshake Away, from Alfred Hitchcock to Guillermo del Toro. For our very first show, we have Guillermo del Toro, who is a current master and an Academy Award-winning director, writer, and producer. Very imaginative director with a particular style that's all his own and extremely popular the world over. Out of all the men on the list, he chose Alfred Hitchcock, which makes us one handshake away from Guillermo del Toro and Alfred Hitchcock. It's my pleasure to introduce you to Guillermo del Toro. Hi, hey, how are you? Hi, Guillermo. Why did you pick Hitchcock? Well, uh, I was raised Catholic, like Hitchcock was, uh, and I think I have the same pant size as Hitchcock, <laughs> uh, 54 or something like it. You're taller. And t- a little taller, uh, equally repressed, I suppose. But I, it's, it's just somebody that I have uh, dedicated a lot of uh, years of my life to to passionately study. Hmm. But you knew him. Oh, yeah, I did. Which is ten times better. <laughs> well, it was interesting. Do you want to come and see some trailers at 11 o'clock? Love to. Yeah. Oh, no, I've got to go over to stage seven. Yeah. Uh, to uh, Theater 7, they've set up a screening for me. What are you running? Looking at some of the footage from Hawks' picture. Oh. I'd like to see it, though. Because we have this running? opening for the trailer for the birds there. Oh, which you did? Yeah, which is quite amusing. That's when you uh, disemboweled... This is Peter talking to Alfred Hitchcock in 1963. They're in Hitchcock's office on the Paramount Studios lot. That's where Peter met him for the very first time, a couple of years before they recorded this interview when Peter was just 21 years old. They became friends. Peter called him Hitch. And here, Hitch is offering to show Peter the trailer for his new film, The Birds. How did you come to choose The Birds as, as, a, as a vehicle? I felt that after Psycho, they would expect something to top it. Or going off Peter recorded this interview as part of a retrospective of Hitchcock's filmography that he was putting together at the MoMA in New York City. It would be the first of several conversations that they recorded together over the years. During that time, their friendship grew and their admiration became mutual. So much so that Peter was going to help Hitchcock make his final film. They never got the chance. But yes, as Guillermo alluded to, Peter did know Hitchcock. Quite well, actually. 
And what I loved about him is his fear of anything breaking the order is something I commune with. Anything breaking the order? Yeah, like he loved everything to be pristine in his life. And he was a man that led an impeccable life, but inside had enormous... Enormous. Day to think what was going on in his head. Yes, it would have been, <laughs> it would have been a, a very clean facade for a very, a very turmoiled home. I remember I was sitting in his office one time. We'd had lunch, and his assistant started picking up the dishes, and she said, Mr. Hitchcock doesn't like dirty dishes. Yes. Can't stand to see them. Yes. Freud would have something to say about that. <laughs> it's funny. I was remembering one thing. Hitchcock... Uh, he was with the Jesuits, and this we had in common because it was the way they punished you. They would tell you in the morning that you did something wrong, and they would not give you the punishment until the end of the day. Oh, wow. Uh, with a ruler across your knuckles. So you spend the whole day in horror waiting for the end. And, and even if, to, quote, to use a, a phrase, they, the crime had gone cold, quote-unquote, by the end of the day, they made it a point to give you the punishment. He knew ahead of time that he would be punished. Wow. And he probably lived his entire life like that, don't you think? Probably. He had a sense of doom instilled in him at a very early age. So I was thinking that is probably another root of the suspense. Peter had that same thought back in 1963 when he asked Hitchcock, the master of suspense if his mastery could be traced back to his days as a Jesuit school student. What influence do you think that the Jesuit schooling you had has had on your work, if any? Was organization, you know, control, analysis, I suppose. The education is very strict, you see, so orderliness. Yes. Is one of the things that comes out of that, I suppose. I don't think that the religion side of the Jesuit education impressed itself so much upon me as the strict discipline that one mm. endured at the time. Although, strangely enough, one's orderliness is, with me, spasmodic. Really? Yes. Certain writers one works with want to work every hour of the day, you know, they're very facile. Uh, I'm not that way, you know. I want to say, oh, let's lay off now for several hours. Let's play. Yeah. And then we get down to it again, you see. He had a lot of paradoxes in him. Hitchcock had a relationship with anarchy and order that was very interesting. He's a holy... Incredibly skillful academic, technical filmmaker, but he is at heart an anarchist. Yes. And he, you know, which is a very rare combination. Uh, It's like a highly polished narrator with a highly destructive, ultimately a, a highly disturbing view of life. The rage or the darkness he had escaped within the seams of the tightly constructed image he had. And I find that fascinating when when a filmmaker shows nature beyond uh, what he controls of the narrative. And the thing that I I like about it is also his view of the world, the idea that normalcy is a pretense, that chaos is always circling that, Uh, his punishment, quote-unquote, of common everyday characters and the lessons that they learn through tribulation and pain. These are things that are very close to me. Peter was interested in those kinds of ideas, too, and he talked about them with Hitchcock and how they played out in his latest film, The Birds. The idea behind a lot of your films is to take average people and put them into extraordinary circumstances. Isn't that one of your key devices? Oh, it must be. Identification, you see. With the the audience identifying. That's almost the same in The Birds, too. Average, very ordinary, nice people. Birds start out like another story. You don't know it's going to be the birds. This starts out with a, a boy and girl meeting, and uh, there's a very light beginning. I'd always noticed that these, what I call catastrophe films, their personal stories were always very not part of the thing at all. Mm. And um, we must take our time. 
get absorbed with the surroundings, the atmosphere, and get to know it before the birds came. Mm. But the point is, everything had to be as real as possible. The surroundings, the settings, the people, and the birds themselves had to be domestic birds. And that transmits itself to catastrophe. Hitchcock was talking about creating tension, dread, and suspense through realism, making the audience believe in the world he was building and relate to the characters. It's what makes the film so terrifying. He made something unbelievable seem totally believable through his deliberate and patient storytelling. Peter recorded this conversation more than 60 years ago, but the ideas they're discussing seem so modern when it comes to the conventions of horror. Hitchcock might as well be describing an Ari Aster film, or Robert Eggers, James Wan, Jennifer Kent, or Guillermo del Toro for that matter. But of course, the other foundational element of the horror genre is shock, and Hitchcock was certainly no slouch in that department either. Surprise or suspense. Now we come to our old analogy of the bomb. You and I are sitting talking here. We don't know it. The audience don't know it. Hear the audience out there watching us. Having a very innocuous conversation about nothing. Boring. Doesn't mean a thing. They're listening to it. Suddenly, boom, the thing goes up and they're shocked. For 15 seconds. Now we change it. Play the same scene. Don't change the scene. Insert the bomb, show that the bomb is placed there. Establish that it's going to go off at one o'clock. It's now a quarter of one, ten of one. Show a clock on the wall. Now go over the same scene. Now our conversation becomes very vital by its sheer nonsense. So don't talk nonsense, look under the table, you fools. Mm-hmm. Now they're working for ten minutes instead of being surprised for 15 seconds. The fatal thing in all suspense is don't have a mind that is confused. Otherwise, they won't emote. Clarify, clarify, clarify if you want them to think about one thing only. Everything must be crystal clear in the minds of the audience so that they only have one emotion is to be suspended or absorbed. They mustn't say, who's that, what is that, what, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. That must not go. I was thinking about suspense, and what he does with the camera is provide audiovisual information in the same calculated way that he provides uh, dramatic information. Yeah. Because suspense is the withholding or parceling of information. Uh, giving a little bit. A little bit for the audience to follow and think they are ahead of the hero who doesn't know it. But they're never ahead, or they should never be ahead of the director. <laughs> that's right. That's that's a big difference. Yeah, that's a big difference, yeah. Never tell the audience something they don't absolutely need or want to know. When he says there's a difference between shock and suspense, right? That doesn't mean one device is superior to the other. Right. They just have to be used. It's the one you need at that moment. At that moment. Yeah. I mean, I think without shock, you don't have the shower scene. Guillermo means the iconic shower scene from Hitchcock's preeminent horror classic, Psycho. Janet Lee was the biggest star in the cast, and she was presented as the protagonist until about midway through the film, at which point she gets murdered in the shower at the Bates Motel. Psycho came out in 1960, but to this day, it remains one of the most radically shocking scenes ever in a movie. Basically. The whole point was to kill off the star. Certainly it was. Because the minute she appears, John Lee, you assume that, uh, that she's going to go all the way through it. Sure. That's just shock. Shocking way to let an audience think. Well, that's marvelous because you took advantage of not only of the of that, but of the audience's knowledge, pre-knowledge that you can't kill off a star. And not only that, don't forget, this is one of the basic reasons for making the audience go in from the beginning. 
You were talking earlier about uh, Hitchcock saying, never set up a murder. He said, never set up a murder because the reality is murder happens like that in real yeah, life. That's right. Nobody says, look, I'll go to the pharmacy and then I'll get murdered. <laughs> that's right. He says, I'll go to the pharmacy, I'll see you in 30 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And you never come back. That's it. That's it. You know, and I think that's the dread. And the third device for me is dread, which is somewhere between the two. And it's very, very hard to do. The, the, the master of dread for me is the David Lynch, huh. who, who, can, who can show somebody moving along a corridor or in the back of a little uh, fast food restaurant and, and you have this thumping feeling of dread and you don't know exactly what, you know? While we're on the topic of suspense, shock, and dread, I heard a detail in Peter's conversation with Hitchcock that I never knew which incorporates all three of those tenets of horror. As it turns out, there was supposed to be an alternate ending to the birds. The scene that made it to print shows a wide shot of a town overrun with birds. And in the distance, our protagonist in a car driving away into the unknown. The film fades to black on that image, but Hitchcock had something else in mind. Well, the ending of the picture seemed purposely inconclusive. It is. I mean, ambiguous. And that, that was because you didn't feel that you could say that there was an end to this. Well, for the ordinary public, they've got away, you know. Yes. For the rank and file, for the morons. Yeah. You know. But uh, for the people who know what you're doing, you hold that shot a long time, which doesn't indicate that they got away. Well, that's, you know, don't read it, that what they like. I toyed with the idea one time of, lap dissolving and they're in the car and they look and there's the Golden Gate Bridge covered in birds. <laughs> that's marvelous. Covered. <laughs> oh, that's beautiful. You know, I was thinking as listening to you, listening to Hitch and listening to myself, we're all a bunch of kids. Yes. We're like little boys playing of course. with toy soldiers. That's what we do. Whew, and that's amazing. what he did. I mean, I think, I think it says something about us that we chose a profession in which we control so many things. And which is slightly childlike. Exceedingly. Well, at least in enthusiasm, right? Yeah. And it's, uh, who are the storytellers? The ones that try to figure out the world because they cannot figure it in their own life. That's right. That's the reality. I mean, we exist only in a situation of control. Other than that, we are socially, most of us are socially inept. <laughs> it's true. You know? And Hitchcock was, uh, you told me, that he didn't like to socialize at all. No, he really. didn't like any kind of, nothing like that. Well, that's why he never saw his films with an audience. I said to him, you never see your films with an audience. Don't you miss hearing them scream? He says, I can hear them when I'm making the picture. Here's Hitchcock telling Peter about his social life in Hollywood. You see, now, I don't know anybody in Hollywood. I don't know any, any, I've rarely spoken to, I don't suppose I've spoken to another director ever about filmmaking, ever. I'll go so far as to say that. Really? Never have. And I you don't talk about pictures? I don't know anyone, I don't know any writers. They must think I'm a little snob around here, but I'm shy about this sort of thing, I really am. If you say to me, why do you like working in Hollywood? I say, because I can get home at six o'clock. <laughs> for dinner, in my own home. That's about the main reason. Hitchcock wasn't always such a recluse. When he was making films in England, he was part of a tight-knit creative ecosystem. That's how he met his wife, Alma, who was a screenwriter and film editor. So he had that ecosystem, and then he left for America, and he was a loner here, except for Alma. And I think he never shared much of a, a social life. Another thing I have in common. I'm not a big social fellow either. But curiously enough, you have been one of the great sort of memory holders for all these filmmakers, haven't you? you know? uh, kind of a conduit, I think. Because mm -hmm. I talked to all these older guys. Jerry Lewis said it was that I was looking for my father. Yes. But, but there's a certain truth to that because my father was very intelligent, very warm and loving, but he wasn't much of a talker. He did it with looks. i never forget one look he gave me after he saw my first film, Targets. Psh, i never forget it. Yeah. Just a look. I know. <sighs> well, my, my father, if any consolation, I'm a generation leader. And my father was 
the same way. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, we, we spend our lives, we are given one family, and then in the course of our lifetime, we gather another one. Or two. Right? Or two, or three, or four, whatever. Exactly. But we, we do find the partial fathers, partial brothers, right. partial mothers, right? And, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, and that's why we love movie sets. Yeah. Movie sets are little utopias. I love them too. That we make them work. You know, and we become uh, sort of benign uh, figures, paternal or maternal figures for the crew, you know. We do families that kind of work. Hitchcock said, I don't talk to other directors. Well, I actually think that one of the greatest pleasures I have in this life is to talk about film with other directors. Yeah. Because I, I believe that we, when you make chairs and tables and everybody uses them, but no one makes them. And you can talk about the assembly, no glue, right. no yeah. nails. You can talk about the grain of the wood, the direction of the grain, why that color, why that, you know. It is beautiful because uh, you can talk about the, the minutia yeah. that is the everything. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hi, this is Amy Poehler here to tell you about a new improvised show from Paper Kite Podcasts, the team that brought you Say More with Dr. Sheila. Check out our new parody podcast, Women Talking About Murder. It's a show about women talking about murder. Every episode features special guests, twists, turns, and the mystery of a missing co-host. Available on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. What's your technique of working with actors? Uh, I don't direct them. I talk to them and explain to them what the scene is, what its purpose is, and why they are doing certain things, because they relate to the story, not to the scene. The whole story. scene relates to the story, but that little look does this for the story. I see. Um, as I explained, try to explain to that girl, Kim Novak, I said, don't, you've got a lot of expressions in your face, don't want any of them. I only want on your face what we want to tell to the audience, what you're thinking. Mm. I said, let me explain to you. If you put a lot of redundant expressions in your face, this is like taking a sheet of paper and scribbling all over it, full of scribble, a whole piece of paper. Now you want to write a sentence for somebody to read. They can't read it. Too much scribble on the face. Much easier to read if the piece of paper is blank. Mm. That's what your face ought to be when we need the expression. That's interesting. So in our, it's, a, it's actually a, a striving for simplicity. Every expression makes a point. Mm. He said that often and in many different ways. And he used to say, if I have a blank face and then I show a terrible image next, yeah. the audience will read an emotion. And and he used to say famously, and I'm sure I'm misquoting him, he said, uh, I like when actors learn to do nothing. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of acting going on yeah. <laughs> in certain movies. A, a lot. Some actors are great actors, but you don't empathize. And some actors are not that great actors, but you, you almost pour yourself into them. Can you give me an example? I, I want because it, I would get into trouble. Oh, but 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 <laughs> but then don't. But it happens. Yeah, to me, that you're like, right. Like you care what is going to happen to this person, and you don't about the other ones. And you don't about the other ones. Even the some of them are excellent actors. It has nothing to do with the acting. No, it has to do with the personality. Well, that's the thing about movies. Mm -hmm. The big thing about casting movies is that you, there's no more uh, movie stars. You know, and it doesn't exist. That was all put together by the studio system. Because yeah. they looked for people with peculiarities. They talked funny. They looked funny. They weren't normal. Mm -hmm. Who talked like Jimmy Stewart or James Cagney? Nobody. 
Only them. Only them. Who talk like Cary Grant. No, only, only Cary. Only, only, in the history of mankind, only him. <laughs> That's what makes him so special. In Cagney's biography, he says that he would drop by to the writers. I said, what are you writing, fellas? And they would tell him and says, hey, I guess that's fine for me. Yeah, I know. Because <laughs> they were writing for him. For him, yeah. Yeah. You know what Cagney can do? Or let's write a Cagney picture. You can't do that today. Peter didn't come up in the studio system. But he did write his debut film specifically for his lead actor, Boris Karloff. Karloff is Hollywood royalty, an icon of the horror movie genre, perhaps best known for his portrayal of Frankenstein's monster. In Peter's film 1968's Targets, Karloff plays a version of himself, an aging horror movie star who crosses paths with a psychotic killer. He said, since I'm playing a character very much like myself, Do I have to say such terrible things about myself? <laughs> you know, to me, he is, uh, he is basically a god. Uh, oh, yeah. For me, he is. I mean, uh, some people found Jesus. I found the creature of Frankenstein. <laughs> And when I was a kid, that, that when he crosses the threshold, for me, it was, I'm St. Paul and the road to Damascus. I fell down. I fell down my horse, struck by lightning. Clearly, Karloff's performance as Frankenstein's monster imprinted itself in Guillermo's psyche. Right now, Guillermo is in production on his own version of Frankenstein. Peter wants to ask Karloff about that role. I said, how do you feel being sort of typed like that? He said, the monster? He called him the monster? Yes, of course. I said, yeah. He said, I felt it gave me a home. It gave me a niche. Mm -hmm. I was very lucky. He said. The camera instantly knows if there's a persona there or yeah. not. Who was it that said the camera loves him or not? I think it was Akim Tamirov told, mm -hmm. told Orson that the camera looks at you and says, I like him. Yeah, or not. Says, I do not. Yeah, and it can take, you know, Mae West walks in and grabs George Raft and steals the scene in three minutes, four yeah, minutes, yeah, exactly. walks out with the picture, you know? <laughs> yeah. Somebody realized early on that movie acting was different from stage acting yes. because yes. on the stage you can't get close enough to really love the person, so, yes. so to speak. Yes, and that, that's interesting because also it has very little to do with who the actor is in real life. That's and it right. has a lot to do about the essence, the way you perceive it. That happened to me a few times, blessed times. It happened to me in Shape of Water where I wrote it with for Sally Hawkins. I saw her in a Mike Lee movie. Yeah. And I said, I'm writing a movie for this this She's actress. Brilliant. She's brilliant. And and I didn't know her. I've never met her. I met her one day and I said, I'm writing a movie for you. I said, oh, well, thank you. And then I thought, I'm going to do it like a like a poem for this uh, this actress, you know. I always say it's about eyes for me. Yeah. I don't cast people. I cast eyes. Or she used to say it's all in the eyes. It's all in the eyes. Yeah. And, and film is all about the way you look at or you're looked at. That's right. And that's it. That's it. That's the end of it. Other than that, the rest is uh, costumes. <laughs> right. You once told me, I think the first time I met you, that, uh, that the English women... They're the best. They look like schoolmistresses. And you said, quote, you said, quote, they're the first to go for the flies. Sure. They are. <laughs> Great. Tear your fly buttons open. Off, even. <laughs> This is Peter talking with Hitchcock rather chauvinistically, especially by today's standards, about the archetypal differences between English women and American women. They're relating it to Hitchcock's 1955 romantic thriller, To Catch a Thief, starring Grace Kelly. Aren't you going in? I'm down the other end. Specifically, they're discussing an on-screen kiss between Kelly and her co-star, Cary Grant. So Kelly in that film is really a kind of a combination of the two. She looks like a typical American. Kelly is the English woman in that film. She, her externals, that's where it was epitomized with a kiss at the top of the, in the corridor. And she kisses him. Cold ice and drags him and kisses him. In other words, she tore his fly buttons open that minute. Most unexpectedly as well. Yes, very. Sure. Very forward. Sure. Well, now, This is, no, I based her on the English type. Very sexy, that was a very sexy scene. Isn't Kelly a rather frightening example of the typical American debutante? Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. 
except in her case, you know, she wasn't frigid like the typical American debutante. That's true, isn't it? You know, yeah. I mean, a typical American woman, I feel, uh, has, uh, uh, well, she's basically what we call a cock teaser. Yeah. Hitchcock projected his tortured attitude toward women onto the screen. You can certainly hear this in the way he's talking to Peter about the female leads of his movies. And though we have Hitchcock's art to be thankful for, the complicated nature of his heart, that's another matter entirely. Hitchcock on women, that's an interesting and lengthy topic. That is... Um, complicated. Um, more complicated, uh, in, in more complicated ways than, than many. I think Hitch uh, had, uh, of course, the, what is defined as the male gaze, without a doubt. But there's also a curiously feminine sensibility, to the to, which is which comes in play, I think, in the gothic or the melodramatic yeah. portions of uh, of his narrative. is 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 a thorny subject, don't doubt about it. But it's also a really interesting subject that reveals. Yeah, I think he's an incredible. He's one of the most complex filmmakers. That's true. Aside from one of the best. Yeah, he's a very very complex uh, character. A lot of that stuff was instinctual with him, or just curiosity. Mm -hmm. I don't think he was a philosopher, so to speak. No, and, and no, but he was, without a doubt, a, a man that had a worldview. Huh? To approach that subject without a thesis and to really do an analysis of the vulnerabilities or flaws uh, on that worldview, extemporizing it, and finding, nevertheless, the moments where he had an empathic or interesting or powerful view at the same time is a very elaborate thing to discuss. But I think, for example, in my opinion, Ingrid Bergman is incredibly complex when she works with him. Extraordinary. And, and, and really extraordinary. And, and, and in so many ways, he makes her the principled character in Notorious. Ingrid Bergman was a force of nature. She was a beautiful, talented, dedicated, and prolific actor in the pantheon of Hollywood stars. She worked with Alfred Hitchcock on several occasions, including the 1946 espionage noir, Notorious, the film Guillermo mentioned a moment ago. The male lead on that project was the equally iconic Cary Grant. Unsurprisingly, Peter knew him quite well. I complimented Carrie one time about Notorious, and he said something like, oh yeah, that's the picture that hits through to Ingrid. Yes. He always threw it to the woman if he could. Threw the picture to Ingrid, meaning that Hitchcock positioned her to be the shining star of the film. Cary Grant was basically jealous of Ingrid Bergman and blamed it on Hitchcock. Now, the reason for this is because it's an old, stupid thing with him. It dates right back to 1941, when I made suspicion with him and Joan Fontaine. And when the picture was over, he said, well, you certainly put one over on me there by throwing the picture to the girl, which was absolutely untrue. Mm. It was, uh, it, it's, you know, it was idiotic remark. And when I'd finished Notorious, a couple of years later, he said, well, you've done it on me again. You've done it on me again, meaning Hitchcock threw another picture to the leading lady. In that case, Ingrid Bergman on Notorious. Peter took Guillermo and I behind the curtain with another story from the set of that film. They were doing Notorious. Mm -hmm. Carrie told me, he said, Ingrid just wasn't there. I don't know where she was, but she wasn't there, you know? And uh, we did the scene a few times, and Hitch didn't say anything. Just sat there and puffed on his cigar, and she wasn't getting it at all. And then finally, around one o'clock, I could see in her eyes she was starting to be there. And just at that moment, Hitch said, cut. <laughs> and I thought, why is he cutting now? And Hitch just puffed on his cigar, and he said, good morning, Ingrid. <laughs> she had shown up. <laughs> but it's interesting how he was observing the whole time. Yeah. And and probably waiting. For her to get there. Yes. Yeah. That's that's a that's a really interesting uh, and he loved it. He loved Ingrid. Loved her. And, and, and I think it was quite mutual the appreciation of oh, the yeah. admiration. Because they remained friends until 
Oh, yeah. They're old age. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to remember it incorrectly somehow, but he, he was sent a working print of uh, Autumn Sonata. The Bergman film. Yeah. And he started watching it, and about 20 minutes in, probably, he walked out. And he, and he just said, they make her look old, and they didn't like her right. Oh. And that's all he could uh, gather from that. He was protecting her. Yeah, yeah. He loved her. Yes. You're hearing the sound of waves crashing on a beach below a hotel balcony in Rio de Janeiro. And if you could see what I'm seeing, you'd see Cary Grant step out onto that balcony, followed by Ingrid Bergman, where they share a romantic embrace. It's nice out here. Let's not go out for dinner. Let's stay here. This is a scene from Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious. What you need here, I'll cook which is one of my favorite Hitchcock. Yes. Maybe his best film, I think. Mm -hmm. If you told me, okay, you have 10 seconds to decide which Hitchcock film you want to preserve forever, you're going to run out of the cinematic with it, I will run with Notorious. Where are you going? Well, if you're going to stay in, I have to telephone the hotel, see if there are any messages. You have to. The scene continues as Bergman and Grant go back into the hotel room, still locked in their embrace. There are no cuts or edits, it's all done in a single tracking shot. I didn't even want to cut there because I wanted to retain an embrace. I'm talking about on the balcony. Oh, yeah, yeah. When they, he goes to the telephone, they never relinquish the hold on each other. I felt that the camera, we should all embrace. They should remain in their embrace and we should join them. And the only way to do that was with the camera. So did the camera and follow them, never left the close-ups all the way, right up to the phone and up to the door, continuous shot. The whole idea was based on not breaking the romantic moment. Yeah. That, that was the important, it was an emotional thing, thing yeah. the movement of that camera. The idea came to me many, many years before when I was in the train going from Boulogne to Paris the train goes slowly through a town called Etap, E-T-A-P-L-E-S, which is just outside Boulogne. There's a big red brick factory, rather old factory, and there were two little figures at the bottom of the wall, a boy and a girl, and the boy was urinating against the wall. But the girl had hold of his arm and she never let go. And she looked down at what he was doing and then looked around at the scenery and down again, see how far he got on, you know, and so forth. And that also gave me the idea, you know, she can't let go, you know, romance must not be interrupted even by urinating. And you were in, you were in the train at the time? I was passing in the train, yes, yeah, so from the train window. Which gives the feeling of a tracking shot in the <laughs> Well, I, I didn't combine that for that time, I just observed, you know. That's, that's marvelous. So I think that that's what is fascinating about him is the way he processed life and put it into the movies. It's, uh, and the interesting thing about that anecdote is the way he constructed film language, but it was, it was not trying to reproduce that moment, but reproduce it for a moment. In Translated it. Translating it. Yeah. What Guillermo is talking about, I think, is the fundamental basis of all artistic expression. Translating your lived experience transforming it into art. I think that's especially true for filmmakers. And cinema is perhaps the most potent medium for that type of alchemy. So naturally, an artist as brilliant as Alfred Hitchcock left us with countless examples of art imitating life across his filmography. Maybe the purest instance came in his 1956 docudrama, The Wrong Man. What twist of fate could take the quiet soul of a simple man and wring it into a shape like this. It stars Henry Fonda, playing a man who has been falsely accused of a crime and thrown in prison. The plot is based on a true story, but the essence of it is rooted in a traumatic event from Alfred Hitchcock's childhood. In Chabrol's book, he tells a story about you're being put in jail at an early age by your father or mm -hmm. whatever. And he seems to think it's very significant to your whole development. Do you think so? Do you think it has any particular significance? 
It could be. Uh, the, the actual occasion was when, um, uh, I suppose I must have been at the age of five, when I was sent along with a note to the chief of police, who read the note, then promptly put me into a cell and locked the door and you hadn't for read five the note. minutes. No, I hadn't read the note. And uh, For five minutes? Yes, and then said, that's what we do to naughty little boys, you see. Now, what effect that had on me at the time, I, I can't remember. But, uh, you know, they always say, uh, psychiatrically, if you can discover the origins of this or that, it releases everything. I don't think it released me from a natural fear of police. Yeah, but you always had. But you, you chronicled that kind of feeling of uh, a person being, you know, in, in, uh, in the wrong man. Oh, I felt the front part of the wrong man I felt very much. Uh, I liked that film very much. Mm. I enjoyed making it too. You know, because after all, this is my greatest fear, fear of the police. The one I can't watch again is The Wrong Man. I suffered too That's much. That's so painful. I suffered too much because Ooh. there's no more perfect Christ than than Fonda. Henry, isn't he great? His, his eyes are the eyes of a martyr. Yeah. Like a saint. That moment when Henry Fonda goes into the jail cell and looks around, mm -hmm. very simple shots. And I thought, well, that's his childhood right there. He's seeing the same thing he saw then, looking around. What am I doing here? There's a certain parsimony to that film, to me. It has that brutal simplicity of yeah. this is the machine and this is how you fall into it, and this is how it grounds you. And it's inevitable. Yeah. That's, the, that's the terrible thing about that movie. There is no race for hope. And I find that... Uh, to this day, I'm 56, and I still think, uh, yeah, you know, we live our principles under the myth that uh, if we live a righteous life, nothing will happen. And now and then life tells us, no, no, of course it can happen. That was one of the other things uh, I felt in common with Hitchcock. I felt uh, that he was both in awe and terrified of the world. These things sound very processable as adults, but I understand why those five minutes in a cell could brand him, yeah. What about with I Confess? How did how do you think Hitchcock... Well, that's why it's such an interesting film, yes. because, because he went through all that, and it's about a priest. Yes. Caught in the tangled web of murder, three people confess the secrets that torture their souls. But in the echoes and shadows of the ancient city of Quebec, Canada, walks a man who knows the whole terrifying truth but can never tell all the strange things his ears have heard. For he is sworn to silence. Thematically tethered to the wrong man, Hitchcock's 1953 film, I Confess, stars Monty Clift as a priest falsely accused of murder who can clear his name only if he breaks his oath to the church. It's another perfect uh, martyr. Brilliant, brilliant. Brilliant. I was, I don't know how old I was, eight or nine, and that movie came up. I had a red television. I remember <laughs> that. Really yeah. funky in the 70s. And I saw that movie, and I thought, it was one of the earliest times I said, this is not just a movie. Yeah. This is something else. I don't know what it is. I, I had the inkling that this is what cinema was, but of course I didn't phrase it like that. And then, then there was a big deal made out of psycho showing in television. And everybody was glued to the TV. And I, I thought, I confess, was a scarier. <laughs> as I, I was, well, it's I, more profound. Well, it was, for me, as a, as a semi-lapsed Catholic, it was, it was a, a lot scarier. When we focus on Hitchcock, on the Hitchcock, quote-unquote, lesser hits, moments that are not remembered as the big hits are remembered, the camera tracking back on Frenzy, Mm. Uh, from the murder scene all the way mm. to the street and how he handles the, the noises on the street. Amazing. You can see that in uh, Tarantino. He has a, an almost identical shot, and you can see the in inheritance of the principles in so many filmmakers, the, the wisdom of his use of camera and sound. Here we are. I'm on the second floor. You're hearing audio from the scene that Guillermo described a moment ago. It's from Frenzy, Hitchcock's thriller from 1972, the second to last feature film he ever made. It's about the pursuit of a serial killer in London. And in this scene, a woman named Babs is lured by the killer into an apartment. 
I don't know if you know it, Babs, but you're my type of woman. But we don't follow them inside. The door closes behind them, and we're left alone in the still and lonely quiet of the stairwell. The camera tracks backwards down the stairs, slowly and deliberately. The sounds of the street below grow louder as we descend until we're out the front door and onto the bustling thoroughfare farther and farther from the apartment. Life goes on for everybody but Babs. One of the things everybody that tries to imitate or satirize the Hitchcock style moves the camera elegantly but purposeless, and, and he really moved it with purpose. He wanted the camera to, to be a third participant and an actor. And he's always curious. He's a very curious camera. A lot of the time, low. You know, almost like the point of view of a child. And he's roaming. Yeah. And, and it's really interesting how those things enhance, uh, enhance the scene. And so he wanted the camera and the actors to dance. Not just the actor to dance in front of the camera. I notice you move the camera a lot as well. Yes. Yes. A lot. You move it a lot. I like it. But is that an influence of Hitchcock? Well, what it, it is, the idea for me is I try to do sort of what I call a symphonic, meaning the camera goes into a largo or, or goes into different sort of musical movements. I, I always say that the great movies aspire to be songs or music. Oh, that's interesting. You know, that they need a, to aspire to that type of reading, that type of um, performance. And Hitchcock is a symphonic filmmaker, without a doubt. Not yeah. only... The way he can go into a rhythm with cutting or he can go into a largo with the camera and he knows exactly when to do it. Uh, how you go out of a scene and into the next one. They have a musical value. They have almost compositional value. Absolutely. And, and uh, when you think about uh, David Lean on uh, Lawrence of Arabia or when you think about a hard cut at the end of a scene in any of Hitchcock films or the symphonic transition of scenes in North by Norwest, things like that, they have that value. You can turn down the volume and they become music. It's true. Music of images and sound or music of purely images. Yeah. And that's, uh, to me, the most. And you can follow difference. the story pretty well, too. Yes, oh, but of course. Yeah. But, but what I think is, is remarkable is when that camera movement and that light and that beautiful moment exists on its own. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, where is John Wayne and the camera is pushing in and jibbing off? Oh my God! Or whether it's Mel Gibson in Mad Max and the camera does exactly the same move. Same move, yeah. They are beautiful moments that exist uh, as only cinema can. Absolutely. How would you define pure cinema? Pure cinema is uh, is uh, complementary pieces of film put together like notes of music make a melody, you know. I think film language is not chemistry, it's alchemy. Yeah, you're really, right. Really, each variable changes with the variable next to it. Right. It's impossible to ascribe precision, but of course, a camera pushing in and jibbing up yeah, is different feeling. than a camera pushing in and jibbing down. Yes, it's right. And it's absolutely different than a camera pulling back. That's yeah, right. Look, when we analyze a painting, right, you hear somebody talking about Van Gogh. And they are not going to say, what is the painting about? Oh, it's about some flower pot. They're yeah. going to talk about the depth of the painting, the, the thickness of the paint, the, the precision of the brush stroke. But very seldom people talk about film in this way. And film is made of those gestures. Absolutely. So, of course, nothing is the same than the next solution. And the, and the ability to orchestrate each solution is what makes a master a master. Well put. The highest form of that for me is when you play with the morals of the audience and you and the values that are supposedly good and you play with them. For example, Norman Bates on Psycho when the automobile is sinking in the swamp. And it stops. And, you, and it stops. And everybody in the audience goes, <gasps> Yes. And we want the, 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 we want the, them to, want them to get away with it. It just comes under the heading of rooting for the for the evildoer to succeed because in all of us we have that 11th commandment nagging us thou shalt not be found out 
That's true, isn't it? Sure, they're they're routinely. It doesn't matter. A man robbing the safe, you know, they'll they'll, uh, they'll you cut away to somebody coming up the stairs. They say, "Hurry up, quick! You're going to get caught." It's not immoral to them on the screen. They want to get away with it. I think it comes under the heading that all villains are not black and all her heroes are not white. You know, there there are greys everywhere. You can't walk down Fifth Avenue and say, "Well, he's a villain." He's a hero, and mm. you know. Yeah. Hitchcock really understood this. Understood that the and, psychology of and, and and sadly, studios don't. Oh no. When the studios tell you we're gonna lose the audience if the character does that, I always say you're gonna lose the audience if the character is not well told, <laughs> but not if he does something objectionable, because everybody secretly must have an impure thought or two a day at least. At least. You know. It's great to show your movie to an audience. It's terrible to get numbers. And this is something that we inherited from Madison Avenue. You know, at some point, uh, movies were researched as product. And I don't think, um, look, uh, the, what makes a movie shocking is what makes a movie good sometimes. There are two or three absolutely brutal moments in The Exorcist. That would not survive if you if you would ask the audience, do you want this to happen or that to happen? Probably not. And I think, uh, look, common sense is the enemy of uh, of art in in many ways. Oh yeah, that's why Hitchcock had a tough time with the the money people so many times in his life, and that's why he was obligated to become a producer and control his films. And and you see him all the way to Psycho not being trusted. The the money people saying no, you should do this and you should do that, as if it was a brand of coffee. I think Hitchcock understood one thing beautifully, which is, in order for the audience to not be in solid ground, it's almost like a hostage negotiation, right? You have to come out of the bank, and <laughs> shoot a customer, and then the police will, the audience will agree to your demands. That's right. And certain lines should be crossed for that emotion. James Cameron said to me one day, the best way to be a nice guy is to have a body at the entrance of, to your office. <laughs> one of my favorite moments with Hitchcock was um, I went to see him at the St. Regis to have a drink in the afternoon. And uh, I don't drink. I never drank. I mean, I, once in a while I have a screwdriver or something, but I don't drink. But he did. And by the time I got there, he'd already had a few drinks with Alma, his wife because he was quite flushed, and they had a whole room service table full of frozen daiquiris. <laughs> so Hitch hands me one, and I just held it in my hand. And then after about 10 minutes, he says, you're not drinking your drink. Oh, and I said, oh, yeah, and I started, took a sip. He did that about three times. So finally I drank the whole fucking thing and <laughs> smashed. Now we go out to the elevator. I'm a little bit, <laughs> I've run out of questions because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm drunk. And uh, so is Hitch, and so is she, Alma. So we get in the elevator, and we're going down. On the 18th floor, two, a couple comes in, <laughs> dressed for dinner. The minute they walk into the elevator, Hitch said, well, it was quite shocking, you know. There was blood everywhere. And I thought, shit, did I just lose a paragraph somewhere? I was stoned, you know, drunk. <laughs> and this was 1964, so everybody knew him because he was doing Alfred Hitchcock Presents. So everybody knew who it was, but they just silenced in the elevator. And he goes on. Oh, yes. There was blood everywhere, from his ear, from his mouth. Oh, it was really quite horrible. Oh, yes. Blood coming everywhere. And I said to him, good God, man, what's happened to you? And do you know what he said to me? And the elevator doors opened, and he walked out. And I'm with him, and I said, so what did he say, Hitch? He took my arm and he said, oh, that's just my elevator story. That's incredible. <laughs> that's a great story. Isn't that great? It's great. And it's the, the, the storytelling and the withholding of information. <laughs> it's all there. It's all there. Everybody talks about Hitchcock as a master of horror and suspense and this and that. And, I, and the reality is that he's a superb melodrama filmmaker and a superb comedic timing filmmaker. Oh, yeah, extraordinary. And suspense depends always in the withholding of information, right? Well, interesting, he said giving the audience information is what makes the suspense. Yes. It's like in comedy, when you show the banana peel, mm -hmm. you know somebody's going to fall. If you don't show the banana peel, it's not funny. <laughs> 
<laughs> absolutely. That's absolutely right. And he's, everybody says, well, his only comedy was Mr. and Mrs. Smith. No. Well, that, not true. There's comedy in, in most of his movies. There's even comedy, beautiful comedy in Psycho. You've said that Psycho is essentially humorous, but its point of view and the moral tone is rather serious, isn't it? Well, uh, when I say humorous, it's, it's my humor uh, that makes me able to tackle the outrageousness of it. In other words, if you weren't basically... If I were telling the same story seriously, you'd tell a case history. Yes, and it would be much too grisly. Oh, yes, you would never tell it in terms of mystery or suspense, you know. Mm. That's the manner of telling I think what saved that man was his sense of humor. Yeah. As a person. Yeah. I believe that when you are faced with huge uh, odds as you're a kid, if you don't have a sense of humor, uh, you're basically destroyed. You're sunk. Yes. I mean, I, I talked to a friend the other day and I said, I'm not joking, I said, I've been thinking about dying since I was seven. And I'm pretty much at peace with it since I'm 40. So it took me about 33 years to process it. But I think that uh, it was humor. My, uh, my father was kidnapped in 1998, 72 days. And believe it or not, what we kept seeing was whenever we could, the sort of absurdist situations we went into, which I, I won't detail, but I will detail them at dinner for you. <laughs> If you don't know what Guillermo is referencing, let me explain. In 1997, while he was filming his movie, Mimic, Guillermo learned that his father had been kidnapped on the streets of Guadalajara, and his captors were demanding a ransom of $1 million. Harrowing days turned into grueling months, with no end in sight. But then, Guillermo got help from a friend. I was about to say an unlikely source, but the friend was James Cameron. Cameron had not only just finished filming Titanic, But he had also visited the actual Titanic at the bottom of the ocean in a submarine. My point is that if you know anything about James Cameron, then you know that he's the kind of guy that you want in your corner in any situation. So Cameron brought in a hostage negotiator who helped make the exchange, and Guillermo was reunited with his father. It's an incredible story and a Hollywood story, so I thought it was fitting to tell here. But I want to get back to what Guillermo was saying before. He was talking about his thoughts on death and dying. As I told you at the beginning, Peter passed away just months after this interview. So it's a bit eerie for me to listen back to this conversation, especially this moment when I asked Peter about his thoughts on the topic. You told me a long time ago that you found when you first found out that we all die. Mm -hmm. uh, what was that story? Well, it was in second grade. Right. Miss Hayes was the teacher, and she was talking about animals, and then she said, well, of course, we're animals, and I, she was talking about animals dying, and then I thought, oh, I put, I, put, I put that together, and I thought, oh, shit, really? Yeah. And uh, it scared me. But then, I don't know, I just passed. I, I do th think about that sometimes, but I, I, not that particular moment, but that was the first time I thought I knew about it. I was second grade. How old are you in second grade? Oh, I don't know. It depends on how smart you are. <laughs> I was probably... 31. <laughs> But isn't it interesting? I mean, uh, quite literally, all my movies, all my movies are about death and about dying or not dying. And, 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 and it is, I, I, and I'm doing right now Pinocchio, right? And when people say, what is it about? I said, about death, about uh, how Pinocchio cannot be a real boy unless he dies. Oh, wow. That's so otherwise he was never alive, right? Wow. And it's the paradox. That's uh, a fascinating way of putting it. It is, but I think in Mexico we understand death in a different way. You know, there's a great poem that says, a, a, a voice has followed me always and telling me, live, 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 and that voice was death, you know, which is, which is the way we understand it in a way. It's the essence of how I understand it. I mean, without it, life loses all, all meaning. There is no perspective. Is that why you feel more at peace with it? Do you think? Yeah, I think so. And, and I, I understand it's a Latin point of view and not an Anglo-Saxon point of view. I understand it, but we, we have a very clear sense of uh, how we're not perennial, and that's what makes our lives uh, interesting. Like, if we can do it a little better for the people that came before and after us, that's why we're here. 
Supposedly, yeah. In theory, the best thing you can do is be kind to those that preceded you and be kind to those that follow you. Yeah. Right? Because then you did good. That's you the, did good then. You did good, man. <laughs> <laughs> On that Jerry Lewis note. On that <laughs> Lady. 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 <laughs> Guillermo, is there anything else you want to say? I want to thank you, man. This is fun. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And with that, we go to Rhapsody in Blue again. Let's go to Rhapsody in Blue. Let's go to lunch. Next time, we're one handshake away from Don Siegel to Quentin Tarantino. I'm a very violent person, although I have a very calm exterior. But I only like the violence to be essential. So many pictures today go out of their way and linger on it. You know, I think it's in very bad taste, and I, and I think it's very poor drama. But after a while, you're just bored with them. I think Don Siegel was one of the great action directors in the history of Hollywood. But while other directors of his time period, they shot action, Siegel shot violence. There's a violent quality. There's a brutality to what the characters do and where the characters are coming from that I think is really strong. One Handshake Away is narrated by me, Louise Stratton. Executive produced by Jenna Weiss Berman. Written and directed by Perry Kroll. Our story editors are Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Produced by me, Louise Stratton and Oren Siegel. Luke Moore, John Teague, and Charlie Morgan of Stack, and Perry Kroll and Ian Mont. Edited, mixed, and mastered by Perry Kroll, Andy Jaskowitz, and Ian Mont. Production support from Sean Cherry, Barry Finkel, Raj Makaja, Javier Crucis, Richard Shelsinga, Peter Tonget, and Kelsey Hayden. Special thanks to J.D. Crowley, Maura Curran, Leah Reese Dennis, Josephina Francis, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schuff. One Handshake Away is an Odyssey original. It's Sophia Franklin, and I have a little secret to let you in on. I know you've all wanted more of me, so I'm introducing you to my brand new mini series that's out now. More of me, more of you, more of us every Monday. Bringing back all the OG feels that initially brought us together. Listen and follow Sophia with an F on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.